3 is 8 Welcome to Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Jeremy Ansuvada, a high school math lead teacher from Southern California, as we'll be discussing inequality in math for students of color and changing the math structure during this pandemic. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome back. Our first guest for today is Jeremy Hansuvada, a curriculum math teacher from Southern California. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. And first of all, how are you doing? How are you handling teaching during this pandemic? Uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, it's hard to say. Right now, I would say I guess I'm doing well. It's hard to say, though. I mean, it feels like uh, with the pandemic, every you know, it feels like a roller coaster. Um, so right now, I'm doing uh, probably the best I've felt all school year, but uh, August was pretty rough for me, so uh, I'm glad it's going better now. How about you? Uh, doing good, just trying to survive. Before I was, uh, you know, trying to swim with ankle weights and an anchor attached to me, but now I think um, I'm doggy paddling. I'm still not, you know, Michael Phelps style, but I'm, I'm barely doggy paddling. So little by little. That's funny that you use that analogy because uh, <laughs> my, my first year teacher, you know, first year teaching, you know, I felt like uh, I was just trying to keep my head above water. Um, and then my mom, who's a teacher, uh, said that, it, you know, it get easier in the second and the third year. And, uh, <laughs> It did to some degree, but I still feel like, you know, even pre-pandemic, that every every year it still feels like I'm just, you know, just trying to keep my head above water for the next day. Um, so the pandemic has not <laughs> not made that any easier. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess the good thing part is, you know, how athletes, they train running with those parachutes. And then when they run without the parachutes, they're much right. faster. So hopefully that's the way I view it once this pandemic's over. Like, you know, teaching, you know, brick and mortar in person should be a breeze. Uh, I hope so, man. I hope so. Uh, I, I feel like that's part of the nature of our job is just dealing with uh, a lot of stress, you know, just constant Stress, you know what I mean? Like that's just kind of the nature of the job. Yeah. So I'm just imagining stress as a, as a game, but let's, let's jump right back in. So one quick look at your resume and it's quite obvious that you love math and you've been teaching it for high school and even at the university level. And I also see that you had two summers where you were in charge of a school summer and after school program for pre-K to second grade. So that's a big change from the following years teaching math in high schools and at the university level. So how was the teaching math of the little ones? Um, it was pretty awesome. Uh, I have, I've been fortunate to teach at seven different schools in my career. I started in South Carolina where I grew up and then uh, I moved to Seattle for grad school. Um, and uh, I taught for three years in South Carolina and I wanted to teach in Seattle. I had, you know, even uh, check out some schools there. Um, and then the month before I moved to Seattle, the No Child Left Behind Act went into effect, and that revoked the reciprocity that South Carolina had at that time with the state of Washington. So my teaching credential was um, no longer valid. So I was unemployed for a while. And then I got a job at the school called uh, the Happy Medium School um, in Seattle, which was, it was like the best job ever. I, I got paid minimum wage, but uh, at that point, I, you know, I was unemployed, so I was happy to take anything. Um, but it was it was such a great job just because um, the school had just such a completely different philosophy in terms of the way it viewed education. Um, and teaching young kids was incredible. Uh, I, <laughs> it was kind of funny because I was 25 at the time. And, uh, you know, so I was, I was still really young and I asked the kids, I, I had a, a group of uh, kindergartners and a group of second graders and I asked them, um, how old they thought I was. And, uh, they said, like, you know, just kind of asking the kids and they were like 59, uh, <laughs> 78, you know, and all these kids across both classes, the youngest anyone thought I was, um, was like 51 and I could not figure it out. And then later on I realized it was because, uh, I, I was the tallest person in the school. And so they thought because I was the tallest, I was the oldest. And, you know, with little kids, that makes sense, right? Their, their concept of age is so correlated to their concept of height. Um, mm -hmm. But it was just such a blast. You know, little kids have so much energy. And the school was really cool about um, 
that's why I kind of first learned about restitution um, and restorative justice in terms of uh, education. Um, and so I, that really taught me a lot um, as a as a parent and as a as a teacher. I love working with that with, with that age group. And at some point, um, I would like to go back. You know, I feel like well, when I was 25, I felt like my age was an asset to me at high school. You know, because uh, you know I felt like I could relate to high school students. But now that I'm uh, middle aged. Um, you know, my age isn't really an asset anymore in that same way. And so I, I would like to go uh, back to elementary at some point, but, um, you know, when I'm ready for that challenge, I need to learn a lot. I need to learn a lot, you know, it's hard. So. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, uh, both you and your partners are both educators, and I know you have two little girls. So who teaches math at home? Does it, you know, when you teach math, does it bring you back to your teaching pre-K to second grader days? Um, well, to be honest, actually, when I was uh, at that school, I wasn't a classroom teacher per se. Uh, again, I was unemployed, so I was just happy to take any job that I could get. And uh, at that point, I was a lunch teacher um, and did the after school program. So um, when, you know, how, uh, you know, the teacher goes out to eat their lunch. Uh, and so I would come in and take over the, the students so the teacher could have, you know, a moment to uh, eat and, and, you know, eat in peace. Um, and so, you know, it was my job to make sure that the kids would, uh, eat, eat their main course and clean up their spot and all that stuff. Um, uh, so I didn't actually do any math instruction, um, at that time. Um, so I, I don't have any formal training at all or, and even really experience at the elementary level. Um, whereas my wife does, uh, she worked in elementary school for five years. So, um, she has more experience and, uh, she does the, um, the overwhelming majority of the, um, kind of work with the, with the kids, um, especially right now during, uh, distance learning, um, you know, I'm with my students all day. Um, and so I don't have, um, you know, that space. Um, whereas as a university professor, she has a little bit more space for that. Um, I try to help, um, you know, here and there. Um, but I, I don't think they like, uh, I don't think my children like dad helping so much because, uh, you know, I, I ask a lot of questions and I, um, you know, want them to make sure they're, it's not about doing the work. It's about understanding the work. So, uh, I think that can be kind of difficult at times. <laughs> well, at least you, uh, admit that part, but how was your experience with math growing up? Did you know that you wanted to teach math or was there another subject that interested you? Um, well, like I said, my mom was a teacher growing up. She was a, um, special ed teacher. Actually, she was the, um, special ed teacher of the year for the state of Tennessee. Um, the first one ever, in fact. Um, and, uh, my dad was a math ed professor. Um, so I only knew teaching, um, when I was a kid. Um, so that, I mean, you know, I didn't know what it was like to have a, uh, you know, another job, you know, like an office job or, you know, construction job or any, you know, business job. I I just, I didn't know about that world. So teaching was kind of all I knew. And, um, I have, uh, five younger siblings. And so I was kind of, as the oldest of all the siblings, I was kind of, you know, teaching a lot, you know, or just, you know, I thought I knew everything basically. (laughs) uh, Um, so that was, I mean, I kind of always knew that I wanted to be a teacher, but my experience with math growing up was, uh, you know, since my dad was a math ed professor, I was kind of, you know, the, it didn't always come easy to me, but I um, got a lot of praise um, as a kid for, for being good at math. Um, but, you know, I, I'm so old that uh, <laughs> when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, um, you know, that math was taught very, very traditionally. Um, and I would consider myself like a shining star, like a success of that system. Um, uh, I was really good at it. I got good grades. And um, despite that, I think that I was a math failure. Um because, uh, well, I mean, I got good grades and that was kind of the goal of the system was to get good grades, but I didn't really know anything. You know what I mean? Like I, I could get answers, but I didn't know what those answers meant. I didn't know how those answers connected to other things. I couldn't apply it. You know, like I would get, uh, you know, the only points I would miss on a test would be like from the word problems, you know, I'd miss some points here or there because I didn't really understand what was happening. You know what I mean? Uh, and so even though I would consider myself or I think the system would have considered me a success. I really don't think I was. Um, and I think that's a pretty damning indictment on the system that, uh, you know, people who are getting good grades, but, but don't really know anything. Um, you know, that, that, that's a problem. And I remember one time in college, um, I got, uh, I had this professor, 
Um, this is sort of a, a pretty high level math class. There were, there were these two classes that were kind of well known in the, in the department to be the ones that students really struggled on. Um, and so for this one, you know, I was really kind of nervous. Um, and the, the professor said, if you had an A going into the final, you didn't have to take the final. And so I was like, just let me get the A going into the final because this class is so hard. So somehow I had an A going into the final. Um, and again, I had no idea what the class was about. I was just kind of doing problems and, you know, repeating the algorithms and, uh, you know, doing problems, but I just didn't know what anything meant. Um, and so I didn't have to take the final, but my roommate, um, who became a math major, uh, he was, he was taken. And so I went in to kind of, you know, uh, talk it over with him. And, uh, I started taking the test and I just, uh, I had no idea what anything <laughs> was. And so after about 15 or 20 minutes, I went to turn in the test. Um, and the professor just looked at me and he was like, I think he realized like the mistake that he made. And he's like, he's like, you know, you can't turn it in, go back and, uh, work on it. And I was just like, Oh no. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, 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 I went back and, uh, spent more time on it and I just, I, it didn't help me. I, you know, I didn't know anything else. And so I, I, I always wondered if that professor rethought his policy after that because a student should not be able to get an A in your course and not have, you know, not doubt anything. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I think that system, uh, that old school's kind of system produced. And unfortunately that, that system is still pretty pervasive, I think, in a lot of schools in the United States. <laughs> So let's jump into our first topic. So access versus opportunity. So there's a recent study that was conducted in the summer that showed that teachers cover significantly less algebra material in classes that are predominantly black students compared to their counterpart white peers or schools that had no racial minority. So the analytic sample was comprised of eight great algebra classrooms and 111 schools across the country with nine schools that are predominantly black, 20 that are predominantly Latinx and 82 schools that are not predominantly minority. Now, algebra is considered the bridge between basic and more advanced mathematics. And I know algebra is usually taught in freshman year of high school, but the recent push being to start introducing it as early as middle school to prepare students for more advanced mathematics in high school. The goal behind this of introducing algebra in middle school is to have students take an interest in math and having that algebra foundation, which would hopefully lead to pathways in careers such as science, technology, engineering, and business. So how important is algebra? I know you taught algebra in high school for several years in Orange County and Long Beach. Um, well, I think algebra is important, but I just don't think the way it's taught in many American classrooms right now reflects the way that it's important. Um, and I think too often algebra is used as a form of gatekeeping, um, which is, you know, really especially pernicious because of the effect that it has on students from excluded identities. Um, and I, I guess I'm, you know, really, uh, aging myself here, but, uh, when I, when I moved to California in 2006, um, there was a, I mean, at that point, like algebra in eighth grade, like there was this big argument about whether that should be mandatory to teach algebra in eighth grade. And the kind of conventional wisdom, you know, I'm using air quotes there, because uh, it doesn't seem very wise to me, but the idea was that if we want kids to be ready to do algebra, let's give it to them earlier, which is just like the dumbest thing I can think of. You know, that's like saying, all right, well, we've got these, uh, you know, three-year-olds and if we want them to be able to walk better, let's make them go up, you know, these flights of stairs and practice walking on flights of stairs, you know, that in which the stairs are too, too large for their little legs to climb up. You know what I mean? Like, um, the average, um, you know, brain, uh, doesn't finish developing its, the frontal lobe of its neocortex, which is the part of the brain responsible for abstract thought. That part of the brain doesn't finish developing for most people until they're 22 or 23. Um, and yet, and yet, you know, we're, we're teaching algebra, which is, you know, by nature an abstract concept, uh, to, you know, eighth graders, which, you know, who are 13 years old. Um, so I was, I was so against that. And, uh, you know, seeing on the front lines, just, uh, you know, the damage that's been done. I started teaching in, when I, in the year 2000, um, and things have not changed much over the 20 years. Every year, I, I keep seeing students coming to me um, that have, you know, huge holes in their mathematical understanding. And, you know, I don't, I hope that I'm not coming across as blaming the teachers. Um, I, I don't blame the teachers. I, I just think the system is very poorly constructed um, to help prepare students for success. Um, 
Students should not have to do abstract thought when their brain is not capable of that. Now, I'm not saying that they can't handle some algebraic concepts, but I do think that idea was really, really misguided. You can't just, I mean, why not take that, you know, one step further and say, all right, well, calculus is important. We want all students to be able to do calculus. So let's have to do calculus at that age. You know what I mean? Like, there's a time and a place for everything. And I think in math, it's really important to make sure you understand, um, you know, those key fundamental ideas. And I'm, that doesn't mean that we just give kids, you know, worksheets and drill and, you know, drill and drill. Like, that's not what's important. Like, I think the, one of the most important things in math that's uh, lacking today is a sense of connection and understanding how ideas connect to each other. And too often, mathematics is taught as a set of discrete subjects and these separate things. I mean, just the name algebra one, geometry, algebra two, uh, is, is kind of a joke, you know, like why is algebra coming in between, you know, algebra one and two and even, even more so why do we even have classes called algebra one? Like, it's not like in the real world, you know, there's a problem and it's like, Oh, this is an algebra problem or, you know, this is categorized as this, it's just a problem. And so I wish we would kind of approach, um, our, our curricula the same way and uh, view things as these interconnected ideas um, so that, and, and talk them that way so that students would understand the connections between things. I think too often we teach things in isolation and students don't really, um, they understand things in isolation. And therefore, when you leave that really isolated um, context, they don't know how to apply it. And they, you know, what they've learned isn't very meaningful. So um, to get back to the question, um, I think that, uh, you know, we want to introduce algebraic ideas in middle school. Um, I think that algebra is, is important. Um, but I, I just don't think the way that it's being taught right now is, is the greatest for students, you know, on a whole, you know, I'm sure there, I know there are a lot of places that are doing a really good job, but I just think as a whole, it's not a great job. And you brought up, um, you know, uh, minorities and how, you know, math is, is taught. Um, that, I think that's really problematic because I think classes like algebra one are used as a form of gatekeeping, um, where, you know, they, they will test students and then, oh, you're not ready for this. So, you know, it gives schools, uh, an excuse to start tracking students, which I think is really dangerous. Um, and, you know, we all know that when tracking happens, that's going to, uh, you know, benefit white kids, um, and it's going to disadvantage, uh, excluded identities. So. I think that that's one of the really dangerous things about the way that algebra is used as a, like a wedge, you know, to divide groups. So in high school, you have different levels of algebra with some of the examples being algebra one and two, and you even have combined classes of algebra and trigonometry. And I know algebra one is meant to focus more on solving equations, linear and quadratic functions, and even graphing roots and their inverses. Algebra two is much more advanced and it's often associated with being considered a college level course. And I remember learning composite functions and much more abstract concepts back when I took it. Can you explain to the listeners what the difference is like between the different types of algebra? I mean, you having taught all three subjects. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to like break your question, but, uh, like, I, I would kind of just ask, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, what is the point of all these classes? Um, I don't think there's a point in separating them the way they're traditionally separated. I mean, they, they have that, uh, you know, separation like you talked about. Um, but I, I think that kind of, you know, the, the function, are, are, are you asking what is the role of these classes or, um, or what are the struggles that students have across the different levels? What is, how do you, how do you yes. want to answer that question? So, yeah, I mean, like, why like, exactly? So why separate between algebra one and then you now algebra true? And then I know sometimes like even in other schools, um, you know, there's a joke that the order of math goes from algebra one. Then you have geometry, then algebra two. And it, it's, you know, it's weird the way to have it. And I know geometry is meant to help introduce more rigid logical thinking and process of needing more abstract concept in algebra two. But why, you know, why this order? Is it, why is it taught this way? Uh, well, that's a great question. And I think the word you use, uh, joke pretty accurately describes it. It is a joke. Um, uh, if there's any math teachers that are listening to this podcast, um, if you have not read uh, Paul Lockhart's famous essay called A Mathematician's Lament, 
please, please, please Google a la carte, a mathematician's lament. It is such a brilliant essay. And I remember the first time I read it, I just, I was nodding so hard. I felt like my neck was going to snap off. It was, it was like uh, a choir of, you know, celestial angels descended from the heavens and just sang to me. It was so beautiful. Um, and the first thing I actually read on from that was the last two pages in which he kind of does a breakdown of, uh, you know, what the the sequence of high school really is. Um, and I don't know who decided that there should be things like algebra one and then algebra two. And then for some reason, we're going to put uh, geometry in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> Lockhart kind of famously uh, takes geometry to task even more than everything else in that essay. Um, I try to read that essay like once a year, by the way, to just kind of reinvigorate me um, when it, when it comes to um, what the purpose uh, you know, where, where my passion is. Um, uh, I'm just going to read here what he says about geometry because I think it's especially kind of poignant. He says, isolated from the rest of the curriculum, the course of geometry will raise the hopes of students who wish to engage in meaningful mathematical activity and then dash them. Clumsy and distracting notation will be introduced and no pains will be spared to make the simple seem complicated. The goal of this course is to eradicate any last remaining vestiges of natural mathematical intuition in preparation for algebra 2. And then he says, why geometry occurs between algebra one and its sequel remains a mystery. Um, I, 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 I think that someone would say those things. Um, I, I guess I, I would be really interested in, in, uh, completely blowing up the system. Um, and just ask, what is it that we want students to learn about mathematics? What, why is it important to learn math? Um, and when I ask people that question, um, I, you know, like I said, both my parents are teachers. And so whenever I'm at, you know, like a, a birthday party for my kids or at some place, you know, meeting new people, that, that's cool. one of the things I love to ask is what, how do you use math in your life? And what can I teach my students um, that would help better prepare them for your job? And Albert, nobody ever says, oh, well, you know, you should definitely uh, teach them more rational functions or you should definitely teach them more about the quadratic formula or, you know, factoring multi, uh, you know, <laughs> multi-term polynomials or, uh, you know, you should teach them about the properties of chords in a circle or uh, inscribed in uh, angles. And, you know, I'm like, nobody ever says any of that stuff. And I feel like so often that's, that's what we teach. Um, and math has just become this series of discrete, disconnected ideas. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's 155 um, standards in, in Common Core high school math. Um, and I would just say so many of those are completely unnecessary. What we need to teach students is how to think. Um, and I think what, I don't know, I would say go into any high school and ask the, the students, why is math important? What do you, you know, why is it important that you take this class? Um, and whenever I ask students, I love asking young people that question and they always say the same things. They say, um, well, you need to be able to balance a checkbook or, you know, write checks or you know how to, you need to know how to compute change. Uh, so you don't get ripped off when you go to the store. Um, and you need to know how to make investments and stuff. But the funny thing is we don't learn that in school. You know what I mean? I mean, they might do some of the change stuff in, in elementary school, but we actually don't even teach kids a lot of those financial, uh, things in, in math. So it seems like the purpose of math has become to give kids these various juke, uh, hoops to jump through. Um, and of course, you know, like I said before, that, that has, uh, effects to it because we know that, uh, those hoops are, um, set up to be easier for certain students than others. Um, so, uh, I, I I'm, I'm sorry for not really answering the question in a, in a straight way. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I can I can do that if you want and kind of talk about more of the, the purpose of learning some of those things. But but I, I guess um, my answer is that a lot of them just serve the purpose of doing the next thing, which I don't think is a very good purpose. You know what I mean? Like, I think we should always be teaching students mathematics that they will help them in their lives and will help them to be better thinkers. I mean, I think that is the point of mathematics is to um, I think that's what, what mathematics has to offer is to help people see um, patterns to be able to reason, to be able to communicate that reasoning, to be able to apply what they're learning to make models, uh, to use those models to help them understand the world, uh, to evaluate those models and change those models. Um, but I don't think that's what we what what is taught in school. Um, so I think that the the purpose of those classes is is different um, than what I would like. 
Sorry, I know I'm very opinionated, so... Uh, no, no, you're not. That's, you know, you're so right. Like, you know, one of the main concepts that I try and teach in math is, like, being able to make connections. Um, so going back to the study, the researchers found that where black students made up 60% or more of the student body, the teachers reported spending an average of 72% of the class covering algebra or more advanced math topics versus 28% of the class spent more on basic concepts such as fractions and word problems. If we look at the opposite side, on the opposite side of the scope, which where schools were majority white, then 82% of the class time was spent on algebra and more advanced concept with less than 10% on more basic concept. Now, the difference between 72 and 82% may not seem like a lot, but again, let me give you an analogy. You know, would you rather have $10 or $100? So that's how I can explain the 10% difference. So the study included Latino students, but it was reported that there's not a, enough significant difference in their course content. So what do you think about these results? Is it surprising? Have you seen this at the schools you've taught? Um, I, don't, I don't find that surprising at all. Um, and at the schools that I've taught at, um, you know, it, it's, it's varied across the schools. Um, at the first school I taught at, um, man, it was, uh, the students were so, so segregated. The school was, um, basically 50% white and 50% black. You know, this is South Carolina, um, uh, 20 years ago when there wasn't a significant Asian or Latinx population. Um, and, uh, that was absolutely what I, what I saw. Um, you know, the white students, um, were the, well, let me say this, the honors track was predominantly white students. Um, and then the remedial track was predominantly black students. Um, and, um, and so the curricula that the two students or the two kind of groups got was, you know, very different. The, the honors students got a more, um, rigor, rigorous curriculum. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I think that's so unfortunate. Um, and what, that was one of the things that I was really glad to learn about when I went to grad school was, uh, about heterogeneous grouping and, and, how all students are served better when um, when you take away tracking. Um, now, I think that leads to, you know, a lot of issues because uh, I think there's a lot of parents out there that want tracking, you know, that, and uh, I mean, I'm a white person, so I'll, I'll call out white people. I think there's a lot of white people, a lot, a lot of white parents, especially that want, uh, you know, their kids to go to school um, in, a, in a way that, you know, we all want to feel like our kids are smart, um, but unfortunately, you know, I think there's a lot of people that want not just to feel that their kids are smart, but that their kids are better than, than other people. Um, and so, uh, like I've, I've got a friend that I taught with actually, um, he said at his school, you know, they had, um, uh, they had, uh, regular levels and they had honors level, but then there were so many kids in the honors level that the parents, uh, some of the parents were complaining that they wanted more. So they had a, uh, I don't remember what they called it, but it was like above honors. So they had an honors and then they had a greater than honors. Uh, and it just seemed, you know, like they, they, you know, wanted to feel like their kids were doing even more. Um, and I, I don't know, I wish that, um, teachers were, were better equipped to know how to teach different, uh, levels. Um, that's an area in which I would love to learn more about. Um, but I do feel like, you know, what I've learned about heterogeneous grouping, um, has really helped me to understand that teaching all the students and in the same room at the same time, while that can be challenging, um, I do think that it benefits everyone. And um, I think a lot of parents feel really threatened in students. Uh, I mean, I would have, I would say that I was one of those students, you know, I was in honors classes as a kid um, and I would have been upset if those honors classes were taken away. Um, but I think I was not mature enough to understand that uh, teaching heterogeneously does not bring down the quote unquote high level of students, um, but it brings up um, all students. Uh, I think it's a more equitable way of teaching. And um, I know that when I have students grouped heterogeneously, you know, you have students who struggle with math or who traditionally haven't been good at math, um, you know, from all races. Uh, and then when they're working in a group with uh, students who are quote unquote good at math, uh, whatever that means, um, I think that they, uh, it can be hard to manage and you really have to do a lot of work as a teacher in terms of, teaching them how to uh, work together and teaching students, all students, the importance of explaining your thinking. Um, because a lot of the quote unquote high achieving, you know, 
or the you know students that are actually good at math uh, are just good at getting answers quickly, but they're not very good at explaining it. And I think there's a lot of value in being able to explain what you know to other people. Um, and uh, I think one of the best things that you know someone can do to help uh, some of those good students um, uh, is to ask them questions about what they know. Um, but I think more it's a, it's a more equitable, uh, more importantly, it's a more equitable way of teaching uh, for all students. I know that the whole push of free algebra in middle schools was supposed to be a big success and the whole idea is that it's better to teach some algebra than no algebra but the truth is that this is just a matter of access versus opportunity because if we look at the data at a national level we know that black and Hispanic students make up only a small percentage of the gifted and talented courses so algebra in eighth grade and more uh, AP or advanced placement courses so Etrus, a nonprofit education advocacy group, found that black students were underrepresented in eighth grade algebra in 37 out of 41 states based on the national civil rights data. The numbers were even more discouraging in high school where black students made up 15% of the population, but only 9% were enrolled in advanced placement math courses like calculus. So taking a quick reflection at your experience teaching math all these years and at all these different levels, have you noticed a disparity like this? Absolutely, and it, you know, that kind of matches what I said before. Um, and uh, I think that disparity definitely exists. Um, and I think the question is, Albert, what are we going to do to change that? Um, again, like I said before, I think detracking is, is one of the important things. Um, uh, it's, it's tough because, you know, when differences start um, at early levels, they just, the gap kind of widens. You know what I mean? And so um, when students have uh, inequitable experiences at the elementary level, those uh, the achievement gap just widens by the time it gets to middle school and then it widens again by the time it gets to high school. Um, so, I mean, we're now talking about a really big issue. How do we fix inequity? Um, but, uh, because now we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, equity in elementary school and, and how is that, you know what I mean? Because, uh, you know, we both know that there are schools where students have, um, more privilege than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, elementary schools, uh, they're so much more, uh, there's so many more elementary schools than middle schools and high schools um, that and your elementary schools are more kind of neighborhood schools um, than high schools, which are more kind of like citywide kind of schools. Um, and so, you know, you have certain elementary schools in, in neighborhoods with more privilege. Um, and I mean, like, like our own children, um, you know, I, I feel pretty guilty that our, our own children are not, um, going to our neighborhood school. You know, we took advantage as parents, we took advantage of the no child left behind act, um, to send our, um, our, our own children to, uh, a higher performing school. Um, that, I don't think that should be allowed, you know? Um, uh, and so, you know, by the time our kids finish their school and they're going to be, uh, they and their peers will, you know, the, the data at least says that those, those students are higher achieving than the, the kids at our neighborhood schools. Um, now, you know, that's based on test scores and, you know, that's a completely different conversation. Um, but I, I do think that these, you know, we have these cracks, um, and the, the cracks just widen with time. Um, and so, uh, I think, I think it's really unfortunate, um, that that these differences exist um and one one of those fascinating things i've read about education is factors that predict future salary and how those factors change over time um you know there's many factors that predict the future salary of a student like reading lexile sat score gpa vocabulary stuff like that um but which of those factors you know or what factor do you think is most closely correlated with future income Mm, which one? Well, I, I was kind of, uh, I can't remember where the study was done, so I apologize for that. But um, what I thought was interesting was for my parents' generation, the factor that most correlated with future income was your father's income. And of course, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, that makes sense. Uh, you know, that it's, you know, it's, it's nothing uh, about your ability. It's just about, you know, family money. Um, but by the time my generation were students, the factor that most correlated with future income was your mathematical ability. Um, and I see that as such a, um, like, I, like I said earlier, it's, 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 it's a form of gatekeeping. Um, and students, people that can't do math, you know, if you take that off the table, um, you know, and, and you just, like in California, you only need two math classes to graduate. And so, um, you know, there's students that are like, you know, they've had 
negative math experiences in, in middle school and high school, and they only take those two classes they need to graduate. And then, um, you know, they go to college and, you know, if they only have two high, math classes in high school, they're probably not going to take um, a, a ton in college. Uh, and then, you know, what are, what are your options? Um, obviously, there's a lot of great options there. But if you're taking, uh, if you're removing math options, the options that you're removing are really high paying jobs. You know what I mean? Like, if you think about, you know, high paying jobs that are out there, um, now I'm not saying they're all mathematical jobs, but they're jobs where um, being able to problem solve and think mathematically and communicate and reason um, are, are really important. Um, and so unfortunately for a lot of our students and especially for a lot of excluded identities, um, those, uh, those opportunities are not there for them. So there's a high, the, the high profile initiatives to push for algebra for all eighth graders wasn't as successful as we would have wished. The California Department of Education found that students who pass eighth grade algebra didn't exactly correlate to the student taking and being and succeeding in more advanced math courses in high school. In fact, there was another study in California from 2015 that found that high enrollments in middle school algebra was actually linked to drops in student scores for state math testing. What this revealed was, yes, these students of color may have been enrolled in algebra courses, but they were not well prepared for the more advanced algebra and math courses in high schools. So these students could be getting A's in the pre-algebra middle school courses, but what happened was when they moved on to the high school and to these more advanced math courses, then all of a sudden they felt like they didn't belong or like they weren't smart enough because they weren't well prepared eventually leading them to fail these courses. Uh, the schools you've worked at, what program and what resources do they have for students who are struggling with math? Oh man, that is such a, a great question. Um, well, the short answer is that um, I don't think there are a lot of really good resources for students who are struggling in math. Um, but to, to go back to, to what you said, that absolutely matches uh, what I have seen over the last 20 years, which is, um, you know, we can increase, you know, we can say everybody's going to take algebra in eighth grade. Um, but if a student's not ready for, for algebra in eighth grade, all you're doing is, you know, you're just teaching them to hate math. And unfortunately, I think that's, uh, you know, the experience of most Americans. When I tell other adults that I'm a math teacher, the most common response I get is, is you know, a wince. You know, they're like, oh, I'm sorry. That must, oh, that must suck. But you teach high school math? Oh, man, that must suck. You know what I mean? Like, they, people have these overwhelming uh, negative experiences with math. And that does not bode well for our country. You know what I mean? Um, that's not good for us if, if that's how most people react. Um, now, of course, that's not how everybody reacts, but, but that's not good. And so we need to be doing more to change students' perceptions of math and the way they, they, they feel about math. Um, but usually what happens in my experience is that, you know, if you're not good in math in elementary school, then of course that's, that's not going to very often get better in middle school. Usually it's only going to be exacerbated. Now, luckily we do have some awesome middle school elementary teachers that are middle school math teachers that turn that around and, uh, you know, change students' lives, um, for the better with math. And that's awesome. But there's a lot of cases, you know, where the middle school teachers, are, you know, just doing the best they can too. And, you know, they have students who come to them with, uh, you know, they, they don't know a lot of the stuff that they were supposed to learn in elementary school. Um, and, you know, again, it's not the elementary school teacher's fault, but I don't think that we as a country are very good at fixing, uh, at helping students that come to us with low skills in these areas. One of the most common um, resources that I've been around in, in my time are these various softwares like Alex. Have you ever heard of that? A E A L E K S. Um, no. I think now there's iReady. There's these diagnostic tools and uh, you know these online things, and they're great at producing data. Um, but I just don't think they're great at instruction. You know what I mean? Like they get kids on these modules and doing these uh, you know lessons, but the students. Um, Again, you know, this is, it's not really rich mathematics. And I think that's like really at the heart of everything is what kind of rich mathematics are we giving our students? Um, and, uh, frankly, I don't think we give rich mathematics enough to high achieving kids. Um, but they, they definitely get more exposure to rich mathematics, um, you know, than students who, uh, have traditionally not been, uh, successful at math. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that's, um, more often than not, uh, you know, students of excluded identities. Um, and so I think just kind of sitting these kids in front of, you know, uh, software and having that teach them stuff is, is not very meaningful because a lot of times it teaches them skills in isolation. Um, any, you know, all the, all the software that I've seen, um, 
you know, it's like, all right, today we're going to do multiplying fractions and it'll like have a car and you do a math problem and it makes the car go and you're trying to race the car or like, you know, it gives you some avatar. And if you get enough problems, right, you get to put a new hat on the avatar or you get to buy sunglasses for it or something, you know, you earn some currency in the game to uh, buy things for it. And unfortunately, I think what it, what it does is it kind of teaches kids that, that math is not something that's meaningful in your life, that we have to uh, leverage these, uh, you know, we have to gamify mathematics uh, in order to make it fun. And, and I don't think it's very fun, to be honest. Uh, and I don't think most kids even find it fun. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of students that struggle are given are these uh, programs that, that, that don't end up with a lot of rich mathematics. So I wish that we had better resources um, for those students. I think what, what, what those students need is if, if they come to, you know, for example, right now I teach freshmen and, you know, I have uh, freshmen every year that they, they come not knowing, uh, you know, whatever you want to, you know, name from elementary school, and middle school, you know, they don't know their times tables or don't know how to add their subtract fractions or whatever. Um, and, you know, not knowing those basic skills, you know, hurts them, uh, you know, when it comes to the stuff that I'm expected to teach them for high school. Um, but uh, I, I think what is most often needed is is uh, smaller class sizes for those students that are struggling. Um, and, uh, but again, what are you going to do? You know, like, I, I mean, even, even at my school, we have had conversations about, um, you know, creating classes uh, just for those students, uh, essentially tracking them, um, which, you know, I, I don't, I, I just don't feel good about that. You know what I mean? Um, but by the time they get to high school, they're usually so uh, separated. Do you know what I mean? Like um, some, we have some ninth graders that are taking uh, geometry or even, you know, I think the algebra two equivalent, our third year math class. So we have some students in a third year high school math class, and we still have a lot of students that aren't even ready for the first year class. So what do we do there? You know, how, how, how do we fix that problem? Um, I wish I had the answer to that, but, um, but I don't. So there are, there are other factors to take in consideration, such as schools with less resources, like title one schools, um, even one that don't have enough funding for better math curriculum and materials, and also hiring less experienced teachers, which is fine in the beginning, but again, the school should be pushing to promote professional development and furthering the teacher's education. And there's also the, like what you said earlier, there's a stigma that just math isn't fun. If we were to eliminate all these factors, there's still the problem that majority black schools still cover significantly, significantly less algebra than compared to schools where black and Latino students made up a smaller portion of the class. So what do you think this wake up call is for? Is it teachers, school districts, legislators? I think the wake up call is for everyone. Um, we all need to, um, you know, do what we can to help fix the problem. I, I do have a hard time blaming teachers for this. I mean, uh, like what are, what are we supposed to do? You know, that's the, our training is to, you know, teach the students in front of us. Um, so I think that it's more of a, an issue for districts and policymakers, um, to, to fix this problem. And I mean, I, I teachers just want to teach students, you know what I mean? And so the schools that I've been at, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, students that come to us with deficiencies, um, a lot of teachers, I think, want to, they just want to help, you know, so they're like, all right, let's create a special class for these, you know, freshmen who really need, you know, seventh and eighth grade math skills. I mean, or, you know, fifth and sixth grade, seventh and eighth grade math skills. Um, and because they just want to help the student. Um, and I, I want to do that too. You know, that, that's, I have an instinct to do that too. Uh, and as soon as we do that though, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of tracking. So I, I don't know, I would love to see some really, you know, outside the box thinking, um, I know some schools do like double block math, um, which is, uh, I mean, it sounds good in theory, right? You know, like if the kids are behind, let's give them twice as much math. But Albert, how do you, how do you think that goes in, in, in reality? You know what I mean? Like if you give kids, all right, you're not good at math. Well, guess what you're getting now? You're getting two, you know, twice as much math. Um, and so instead of kind of being creative with it, what essentially happens is they say, all right, now we've got twice as much time to do math. Well, if you're a kid that doesn't like math, how's that going to go for you? You know what I mean? How do you think you're going to feel about that? Um, and so I would love to see some creative ways of solving, like creative ways of solving that. Like, 
all right, let's have two math classes, but one of them is going to be your normal math, you know, your grade level math class. Because, uh, you know, the little bit that I know about uh, remediating students, a little bit that I know, and I wish I knew a lot more, uh, but the little bit that I know says that what's important is to teach them as much grade level stuff as you can and to remediate the stuff from previous grade in the current grade level, which is, of course, incredibly hard for the teacher. Um, but, you know, the people who I trust and follow um, with regards to math equity, that's what they say. So I'm, I'm going with that. But what if the other math class could be something else? Um, and, I, and what I'm not suggesting is a, a basic skills class, but just an opportunity to foster a love of math and uh, to do more outside the box creative math. Um, uh, mathematical modeling, I think, is one of the most beautiful aspects of math. And it's one of my favorite things to teach. And it's one of the things that students come the most alive about talking. And students who have been uh, traditionally excluded um, from math classes because they don't have some of that uh, traditional background stuff um, still have the, uh, the knowledge and understanding of the world outside of classrooms that helps them to, um, you know, excel in, in mathematical modeling. Um, and that's, that's one of the cool things uh, as a math teacher. One of the reasons why I love being a math teacher is because, uh, you know, just frankly, the, the expectations are so low. When students enter my class on the first day, I have so many students. The first assignment I give them is an assignment called Mathematical Autobiography, where they tell me, you know, what their kind of history with math is. And uh, it, it would just, Albert, it would break your heart to read the number of times that students say, um, you know, I've never been good at math um, ever since third grade when that times test or, you know, this one time in fifth grade, um, you know, the teacher called on me and I didn't know how to do this. And um, all the other kids knew this or, you know, the teacher, you know, said, well, you don't even you're in fifth grade and you don't even know your times tables or, um, you know, ever since fractions, I've never understood fractions. And so I've always been bad at math ever since that um, or, you know, just so many things. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many students I, I get that tell me they're not math people um, and how many parents, frankly, that will say, um, you know, uh, you know, my child's not a math kid. Um, you know, that, that's just so heartbreaking. Um, and so I, I love teaching uh, math in a different way and, and having curricula um, that shows students that there's more to math than just uh, doing exercises in a textbook, you know, and, and solving equations and getting the answer. Um, but, you know, we can reason about the world. We can, uh, you know, use our knowledge of the world outside of classrooms to make sense of things and then uh, think mathematically and reason mathematically. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a very, very long answer to your question. <laughs> No, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, it, it, you know, the whole thing about like, you know, give students don't like math and like, all right, let's give them double math. Always to me, always reminds me of the situation where, you know, like a child doesn't want to eat their green and veggies. And the mom says, all right, you don't want to eat this. Here's two plates. <laughs> it's obviously going to make them dislike eating the greens and veggies. But one of the recommendations or first steps in trying to solve this inequality is by having teachers from the whole district collaborate and compare how much and how they're teaching math or algebra. And they would delve into what exactly materials they're using, how they're covering it, and how much they're covering. So, Jeremy, even at a you taught, you know, at a university level, how important is it to collaborate with other teachers on the same content material? Well, I just I just want to be clear. So, I didn't teach math at the university level. Um, I taught math teachers at the university level. So, I taught at um, UCI uh, and their CalTeach program, um, which is a program for math majors that. Who, who math majors who want to become math teachers. Um, uh, so but I, I think it's incredibly important to collaborate with other teachers. Um, and I mean, frankly, I think that's something that I've struggled at in my career. Um, as you can tell, I'm a very opinionated person. Um, and I think uh, sometimes that has made it uh, hard to, for other, you know, to work with other people. Um, and uh it's something that I've, I've learned as I've gotten older. Um, it, it's so important to, to any teacher out there to develop a relationship or a, a community of people with whom you can collaborate. Um, cause I, I've been in that boat where I'm just doing it all myself. And, uh, man, our, our analogy from earlier about just trying to keep your head above water is so, um, so apropos there. Um, you know, if you're with other people, you know, you can all kind of, uh, 
swim together, you know, make a boat together. It'll be a lot of work, but, uh, you know, once you get that boat going, um, it can be, uh, you know, a great resource for everybody. Um, I, I think it is so important. And sometimes, you know, teachers are not going to have that on their school site. You know, I've, I've uh, there, there's schools where, uh, you know, a teacher might be by themselves, you know, and I've had that happen before where, um, you know, you're just the only one. Um, earlier in my career, uh, I, I was at a school and uh, there were uh, so many math teachers and um, a lot of them were, were later in their career. Um, and one of them even like took me out to dinner one night and he said, uh, you know, hey, I, I see all this new stuff you're doing. Um, uh, you know, tell me more about it. And I did. And and he was like, man, this sounds, this sounds really interesting, but I'll just be honest with you. You know, I'm going to retire in two years. Um, and I don't, I don't, that's, that's too much work for me to do, um, you know, at this point in my career, um, you know, which is really just kind of heartbreaking. Um, you know, I think a lot of teachers, you know, teachers are just doing the best they can. Um, and if you don't know, then you don't know. Uh, and when I first started teaching Albert, I didn't know, uh, anything about teaching really. Um, I taught just the way that my teachers taught me, which was, um, pretty terribly, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) very, very traditionally, you know what I mean? Again, and not to like, uh, talk badly about my teachers. They were doing the best that they could, but they were taught like their teachers taught them. And I, I think unfortunately what that kind of results in is that, a lot of math classes now are taught not that dissimilar to the way they were 150 years ago. Um, and that's not what our students should be, should be doing. Now there are a lot of like really awesome, innovative math teachers. And, uh, if anybody hasn't heard of the, uh, uh, math Twitter blogosphere, uh, I would encourage you to Google MTBOS, uh, math Twitter blogosphere, um, and learn more about that or just go to hashtag MTBOS and there's this beautiful community of teachers that are working together um, to create this, you know, really cool community. And so even if you are at a school by yourself um, where you don't have other teachers that are um, as interested as you are in uh, reforming the way um, your subject is taught, um, I, I would in- encourage them to, to go online and to seek a uh, community because I, I think that is that's so important. So with that being said, let's jump into our second topic, and that's about changing the way we teach math during this pandemic. So there are three questions we should look at when talking about equity in math classes during the pandemic. The first is the whole structure of consideration. So during brick and mortar or in-class teaching, we always have differentiated heterogeneous groups for intervention. So we have separate groups depending on the students' math abilities. But however, how do we do this during the pandemic when teachers are just spread out so thin? Um, it's, are you talking about like breakout rooms and stuff like that? Yeah, just, you know, breakout rooms and just, uh, you know, how do you address all the different levels of, of students? Well, like I said, I believe very strongly in, in heterogeneous grouping, which is, you know, putting all students together regardless of their ability levels. Um, and so, uh, I, I just use the randomizer on, on Zoom and uh, put the kids in groups. Um, I do try to keep them in their groups for a couple of weeks um, so they can, you know, build relationships with each other. Um, and, you know, in groups, you know, you're going to have students of different abilities. You know, you're going to have students who have historically been good at math and students who have uh, historically not been very good at math. Um, and uh, But I think it's really important that they work together. Um, it just is even more hard. I mean, it's hard enough doing that in the classroom, you know, when we're all on campus together, it's even more hard, uh, and during a pandemic. Um, so many of my students, um, as, you know, I'm sure many teachers out there, uh, so many of my students have their screens, uh, on, on mute, their video on mute, um, you know, whether by choice or by necessity, um, and their audio on mute as well. Uh, and so it's, it's really, really hard to get, you know, the students to, uh, engage, um, engage meaningfully. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I wish I had more suggestions, um, for teachers. I've been trying to encourage my students, um, to, you know, turn their cameras on when they can. Again, you know, I've got a lot of students who, you know, they can't for, uh, for various reasons, you know, like their Wi-Fi is really sketchy or, uh, you know, they're in a room with, uh, three siblings and, you know, it's, it's chaos or they're, you know, uh, they don't want their classmates to see, you know, what their, what their house or living conditions look like, or, you know, for whatever reason, um, I've just been trying to try to motivate my students to, um, to kind of come out of their shells because I do have some students that are like, Oh, my hair is bad today. Or, you know, like I haven't put my makeup on and, uh, you know, so that, that, that is, it's kind of hard for me as a teacher to, I think that's one of the areas that I've been struggling in is differentiating between the students who, 
are not participating because uh, they don't have the ability to, or they just don't feel like it. Um, I, I feel like I don't have any answers when it comes to uh, advice during the pandemic. I mean, I've, uh, right now I'm doing well, but uh, August was just, was really rough for me. And um, many days where I just, you know, either ended in tears or just like asked myself, what am I doing? You know, like I, uh, as I just close my laptop at 2.30 a.m. and just like wake up to do it all again the next day. You know what I mean? That has just been way, way too common. And I'm sure there's so many others that are going through similar situations. So then the second category is teaching practices. So there's the push for more frequent formative assessments to track how students are learning and they want to take the data and then able to make adjustments. So, you know, still be pushing for higher uh, thinking math concepts with the whole low floor, high ceiling in which students of any math level can step onto this platform and attempt the problems. And the high ceiling part is for students with more advanced concepts uh, and a better grasp on it. They can still take this problem and take it further to the next level with a high ceiling. So resources like math tasks and questioning strategies and formative assessments you know, are more important than ever. For, for yourself, what teaching strategies have worked best for you during this pandemic? I know you said you have the breakout rooms, but what else have you tried? I mean, gosh, I feel so limited. Um, I mean, breakout rooms, uh, I mean, I've had, I've had really mixed success with those. All my groups are, are, you know, working really, really well. And some of the students like going into those breakout rooms. You know, they feel like when they're in the whole class Zoom that everybody's staring at their screen and that's why they, they have their screen off. Um, and they feel like when they can go into the breakout rooms that, it, that you know, they can kind of relax and share their screen. Um, but I, I, I've really been struggling with that. Uh, I last, in, in the spring, uh, a colleague and I who I um, worked really well with, we did this uh, Desmos project. Are you familiar with Desmos? Mm, no, not, no. It's, it's an online uh, math, essentially graphing calculator type situation where you can graph stuff. Um, and so, I mean, nothing about the quarantine is good uh, and nothing about distance teaching is good, but I was just, uh, you know, we were kind of thinking like, well, if the students have to engage uh, in class through a screen, you know, let's, let's see if we can leverage it somehow. So um, we spent a long time uh, creating a lot of resources for this Desmos um, math art project where they use graphs. Um, you know, they, they, they graph all these different functions and they use the functions to make pictures. Um, and so, I mean, I, I feel like uh, they were, they, we had some small success in that. Uh, you know, it was just so hard to get uh, a lot of the kids to participate in the spring. Um, uh, so, I feel like that went, you know, about as well as it could have considering the circumstances. Um, to be honest, though, like, I don't really know that much about teaching. You know, I don't know what I've learned about teaching strategies when it comes to uh, teaching math. I think the bigger thing for me has been motivation strategies and, you know, just trying to motivate my students, um, which I don't think I've been successful, you know, with a, with a lot of students, frankly. Um, but I think the biggest mistake that I made in the spring was um, feeling the pressure of time and not feeling the pressure of relationships. So, for example, our school, we have 90 minute classes that meet every other day. Um, and, and during the pandemic uh, in the spring, we went to one hour a day, um, every other day still. And so, you know, my immediate thought was like, oh, man, you know, I've got a third less time. Um, you know, we got half an hour every, you know, every class that is gone. Um, and not only that, but an hour through Zoom is not the same as an hour in person. You know, it's just not. It, it's the multiplier there is definitely less than one. Um, and so the mistake that I made was just kind of trying to keep going and going and going and teaching and just, um, and I think one of my skills, one of my strengths as, as a teacher is really forming really strong relationships with my students and getting to know them as people and having them get to know me and really leaning on the strength of that relationship to, uh, to tie very closely to motivation. Um, I feel like I'm pretty good at motivating a lot of students, you know, obviously not all students, um, but, but a lot of students. And it's so hard uh, in the pandemic to do that because I just feel like the students, I mean, it's hard for us, you know, we're adults, right? And this is, this is hard for everybody, but you know, it's, it's so hard on the students, especially the seniors. Um, I feel like they, um, I, I see the most depression and uh, motivation struggles in, in seniors. Um, but with, uh, I've got, you know, freshmen this year. So obviously 
actually, they didn't go to our school last year. And uh, so I met them through Zoom. Whereas, you know, most of my seniors, I, I had either taught them before or I knew of them or had seen them around campus. Um, but the freshmen, I'm, you know, meeting through Zoom. Um, and it's funny, I've got two classes of freshmen, Albert, and one of them, they're just so alive. You know, they're electric. Uh, every day they're like blowing up the chat. You know, they just have all this energy. Um, and, you know, a, a good chunk of the cameras are on and they're, uh, you know, really excited. And, you know, I'm able to joke around with them and uh, they're just having a lot of fun. And it, it, it's, it's, you know, of course, it's not the same as being in person, but there's been some times uh, in the last week or two where it's like, man, this is, uh, you know, it, I feel like I have a relationship with them. Um and I can uh, joke around with them. I'm still not able to like kind of push and prod and, and use those really personal relationships to kind of, um, you know, to motivate students and, and talk to the ones that are really struggling. Um, it's really hard to kind of, you know, you, you, you can't really have those one-on-one conversations when you've got all the students staring at you, you know what I mean? Um, but as for the class as a whole, I feel like I've been able to, you know, kind of relate to them. Whereas one of my other classes, um, uh, the overwhelming majority of the, the cameras are off, like almost all of them. And, um, you know, there's not as much interaction. Um, and, you know, I, I try to, uh, you know, joke with them and, and kind of relate to them. And I've uh, been showing them a lot of embarrassing pictures of me when I was younger. Um, and, and they seem to appreciate that. So I've been, I've been trying that. Um, so if any teachers out there have like pictures of themselves when they were the, your student's age, um, that always is very exciting for the students, uh, especially if they're more humiliating or embarrassing. The students <laughs> love that. Um, and I mean, if I can embarrass myself to, if, if that's what it takes to motivate my students, then I am happy to do that. Uh, but that's, it's definitely been a struggle to, I, I don't know that I have strategies that have worked. Teaching strategies, you know, is what you asked for. I don't know that I have that, but I, I think motivation strategies is, is what I think is important. And then the last category is advocacy in which educators should be advocating for not selling for the bare minimum. We should be challenging our students and also outside the classroom with budgeting and curriculum materials and professional development. What are some ways that a teacher can advocate for better uh, equity? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know, Albert. I mean, what, who listens to teachers? You know I mean? What, what voice do we really have? Um, I mean, we have a voice. Um, but I, I, I wish I felt more positive about that. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that's for, you know, policymakers. Um, I, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I, I wish I had answers there. I feel like that is definitely not a, not a strength of mine. I, I think, you know, forming community is, is important. I mean, I don't think teachers, you know, even with the amplification of the era that we live in, I, I think it's something where we, we have to come together and, uh, and in community, um, advocate uh teachers unions are completely you know I, I wish we could use teacher unions for um in that way or, or leverage them somehow um i wish i had an answer I, i'm afraid i i, I i'm kind of flummoxed on this one i don't know what to say well i i definitely uh, i definitely agree with you about community like even at my school being part of the family outreach or community outreach programs and letting them know, be aware of all the issues that's going on and what they can vote on, talk to the local leaders. So that's one thing I definitely recommend. And as we wrap this episode up, I want to say, you know, thank you to our guest, Jeremy. Is there any advice you would give out to new teachers or, you know, people just even thinking about entering the education field, especially during this pandemic? Oh, man. Uh, I mean... I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a new teacher um, right now. I mean, like I said, I started teaching 20 years ago, and this has been just so hard on me. So I, I can't imagine what it's like, um, you know, uh, for people that are just starting out. Um, uh, I, I think the most important thing is to um, have self-care, you know, find find ways to energize yourself and to take care of yourself because if you're not at your best, then um, what good can you be for your students? Um, I, I feel like we're all just trying to survive right now. Um, and so whatever can kind of help you to survive the most. Um, but, but I guess maybe, maybe if I can, you know, something just came to me. Um, I don't know. I don't know about other teachers, but right now I'm definitely feeling like I'm in this pattern. You know, we've been doing this now for almost uh, two months and I feel like I'm in this pattern of every day kind of going through the same kind of stuff. So I think it's important to just, uh, and this goes for, you know, pandemic or no pandemic. I think it's important every now and then to just stop and just talk to your students on, uh, you know, just kind of 
put the chalk down, you know, put the whiteboard marker down or, or, you know, close the laptop for a second and just look your students in the eye and, you know, just say, uh, you know, how's it going? What, 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 what can I do? Um, how can I be a better teacher? What is it that, you know, you need? Um, and I mean, if you're going to get honest answers for students, you, you really have to develop a relationship before. And you can't just ask that question, obviously, and expect um, students to feel comfortable being honest with you. And so I think that's something I'm really proud of as a teacher is my ability to um, not just ask for feedback, but really communicate to the students that I need their feedback um, to the point where, you know, they tell me stuff that, that is really brutally honest um, and that sometimes hurts. Um, but I want to know that that's what... But that's what I want. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't think my students would tell me as much if, if they didn't know that they could trust me to accept that information. You know what I mean? Um, and so uh, it's been really good on the days where I'm just like, all right, let's let's just let's just talk for 15 minutes um, about your life. Um, and uh, one of my colleagues is really, really great at um, asking a lot of uh, completely non-math questions, you know, just really kind of personal stuff to get, get a sense of how the kids are doing. And she really, uh, connects with them on that level in a way that's really beautiful and inspiring to me. She's only in her, uh, third year of teaching and I've learned so much from her. Um, uh, and, and I think that that's really important to just kind of talk to your students in that way and, and just forget about the, the curriculum for, for a couple minutes and, and see where they're at and what they need because, uh, you know, we can do whatever we want uh, with content, but if they're, if they're not, if they're not at a place where emotionally, mentally, physically, where they can accept that or, or if they can, you know, deal with it, then it doesn't matter how fast or how much we teach them or how good our lesson is. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. As we wrap this episode up, I want to say thank you to our guest, Jeremy Hansuvada, and most importantly, you, the listeners. See you next time. 